Welcome to Kineo's Stream of Thought, a monthly podcast that features informal chat from the Kineo team about all things learning. I'm James Corey Wright, Head of Learning Design, and today we're speaking about blended learning. Today I'm joined by Krista Woodley, Learning Consultant, Andy Dent, Head of Business and Product at the Oxford Group. Mark Harrison, Learning Consultant. Okay, blended learning's been with us since the 90s, the early 90s. Um, so why on earth are we talking about it now, today? I think it's a really interesting topic. I mean, it's been around for so long, and, and we still, when, I, when I'm out talking to clients, that they're still constantly asking how we can use blended learning within programmes. But often it's the, well, the why. It just seems to be something that people ask about and don't really put the thought into what is actually going to sit behind that. that. That's my take on it, really. Do you think that people actually know what it is in the first place? I think they have an idea of what it is and they've seen it used elsewhere. But in terms of how it's used most effectively, that's probably the the question that we need to ask in terms of how we can bring it into a learning ecosystem that's going to help embed and really make things stick. We find it's quite disjointed at times. So maybe uh, let's just start by all agreeing what we actually mean by the term blended learning. I think blended learning's quite a controversial idea because when it first came in the 90s, people were saying, well, I've been blending forever. I've been using lots and lots of different methods. I've always thought that blended learning is basically a a term that focused on the fact that there was something new in that time, and that was e-learning, that was online learning. And so it was basically a mix of different delivery methods, but always there was some online learning or e-learning inside the mix. And I think generally that's what people agree is blended learning. Okay, that's a good working definition. And, um, you know, has it been done well? Well, I think uh, echoing what Andy's been saying earlier, um, I think the issue is that everyone knows what the components in the blend should be. I think that's pretty clear. But what? Like what? Well, they, they should be face-to-face, they should be online, they should be coaching, there should be bits that you're reading, don't know, so standalone and integrated. Uh, but the fundamental problem is that each of those components are being created by people who are experts in each of those fields. So you have people who have digital media experts, and then you have people who are face-to-face deliverers, and there's an initial conversation. You get the idea of where it's all going to fit, and then everyone goes off in their different directions. And there's no one keeping it all together. And suddenly you have the face-to-face course that has hardly changed from what it was and the e-learning that hasn't really paid attention to what the face-to-face is doing or the coaching or something like that. So there's a desperate need, really, for an integrated team right from the start to the finish. And I think that's what's missing. I think that's a really important point, the ownership of the whole thing and bringing it all together. I would also go back to that definition Um, Because I think there's a question, isn't there? Can you have blended without any face-to-face or without any virtual classrooms? Can you have something that's an entirely digital blend? Can you have something that's still a blend, but say entirely asynchronous, completely self-directed? Because I would say that that you can, and maybe I'm, you know, stretching the definition of, you know, of what traditionally we might think of as being blend, but, but I don't, I still see that you could have a blend that is like that. Yeah, I guess for me, it's all down to what is the outcome you want from the learning. That's where we should start from. What, what is the outcome and what is the best delivery method that's going to get us there? I think, you know, organisations are time poor now. So blended learning and e-learning is a solution to avoid taking people off the shop floor as much. 
So it's very prevalent, but it's making sure that what we include, the different modes of learning, really meet what that learner needs and taking them to the place that they've actually grown and developed over a journey. And I think that is really interesting, isn't it, Um, in relation to what Mark was saying about that sort of that oversight over the whole thing. Mm. If you can have one person who's effective, I mean, it's an af- um, analogy, but like the conductor of the orchestra, somebody who's bringing the whole thing together, who's say, using the kind of sense of rhythm that you get from those different channels, saying we're going to use that channel for this type of learning, for this kind of pace, for this purpose, and we're using that channel, and this is how they relate together. It's about looking at those relationships between the channels, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I still think there's an issue about blended learning and the concept of it, it it was useful in the 90s because it basically said there's something different here guys pay attention to all this stuff that's coming up with the interactive technologies and it was a clarion call to bring everyone in the same room it was a clubhouse for everybody I think that clubhouse is gone you may even question why blended learning is even being used now essentially what you've just said Krista is is it's just a mix of medium that you're using and as long as we're sophisticated enough we shouldn't bother about terminology in the future we just get whatever's right and match it because it's the right thing for the topic it's the right thing for the target audience and for the operational constraints that the organization has like budget so um pick up on that what sort of blends do you do andy one of our um, flagship programs five conversations we've got a, a blended program where we've got three modules First module is e-learning, lots of different modes of e-learning included. And the idea of that is that it kicks off some of the key concepts that we're going to go into in the live classroom environment, which is the second module. So the delegates go through about 45 minutes to an hour's worth of content delivery. And that's through videos, PDFs, interactivity, and then they hit the classroom, the live environment. And hopefully what that means is that we can fast forward through some of the theory of neuroscience in this case, and also engagement and dive straight into some real interactive, pragmatic conversations um, and really get them to practice what we know they need to for the follow-up in the workplace, what is going to be the outcome of the programme. And I would also add, because I worked on that programme with Andy, um, one of the really powerful things about that programme is that it, as part of that first module, it sets up and builds a kind of social learning community. So all of the learners are not only experiencing those digital assets, they're answering questions on, on the platform, responding to each other with ideas, suggestions, questions, actions, that sort of thing. And I think that's one of the things that we quite often miss in blended learning design, is building a community around those assets that takes that learning forwards in a kind of knowledge sharing, sets up a sort of knowledge sharing initiative or agenda that just continues driving after the learning event mm. might have happened. And that's drives it through the organisation. Yeah, and just to build on that, once um, the delegates and participants have been through the live environment, we also then have some follow-up e-learning as well. And that's all centred around reinforcement of learning, some activities and some scenarios for them to work through that would be reflective of barriers that they may overcome in trying to embed some of this learning and some of the conversations so that they feel a bit more courageous to go there and to actually do the thing straight after they've gone through the programme. The other way that we we use, um, it's called a 21-day workout, and it's essentially nudge theory, where we send 21 emails over a period of 21 days, just nudging them in the right direction to make sure you're reinforcing what's gone on in, in the delivery, but also prompting them, provoking them to go and do some of these conversations, think about the content of, of, the, of the learning, and really, again, to embed the learning. 
How does that um, sound to you, Mark? Well, I, I think it works. It works really well, and I've seen it, it's been very successful. I think it, I think it brings up a thing that, as a designer, has got you've got to think about is is there's a core element that you almost is mandatory. Then you will not get the best out of this program unless you engage in each of these elements. But that's missing slightly the point of blended learning in, in the respect it's meant to cater for different learning styles and different personality types. You know, traditionally, you could say the more extrovert characters prefer being in the classroom and the people who are more reflective and quieter sometimes like to learn individually on their own. The idea of blended learning was to give all of those opportunities. The reality is that we've often faced is that the people who are more suited to being in the classroom and more enjoy it, don't do those pre-work. They don't get involved in those things. And you've got to be able to design something, I suppose, that can still survive. Uh, I did a programme some time ago where we actually did the rather ambitious idea of you didn't have to do the pre, you could do it post, but you all turned up regardless. And so some people in the room didn't know what the hell was going on, but they were prepared to do that because that's the kind of person they are. And the people who wanted to prepare had the ability to see the e-learning before they went along. The people at the end would then, you know, the extrovert characters would go, God, I didn't understand half of that. Let me now learn about it. It was successful. Um, but it's a really ambitious program to do. It puts a lot of emphasis on that tutor because you don't know who in the room knows what you're talking about. But it was a very exciting program. But listening um, to what you've been saying about uh, learning, the, the, the programmes we're sort of talking about, don't they, aren't they a bit long-winded? I mean, they sound like a sort of a revamp of traditional um, courses um, that would have all been done as stand-up, have become blended, so now the mix that you talked about, Mark, they've sort of introduced a, a technological element. But they still follow a quite a very traditional sort of model. And in today's day and age, it's all a bit sort of long-winded and um, formal and very traditional. I think I think one person's long-winded is another person's uh, sort of learning campaign. So it depends entirely on how it's designed, doesn't it? If something feels long-winded, I mean, something that's only 20 minutes long, if it's boring, it feels long-winded, uh, you know, even if it's 10 minutes long. But, you know, if you design something that is really you know, to the point, it might still be stretched over. You might have a six-month a six campaign where you get something every day. If it's helping you and it's to the point, then Could you that's have, great. Can you have a 10-minute blend? Yeah, I don't see why not. It sounds more like an individual module to me. Uh, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a pudding. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a, a starter. Um, but now, what if you had a one-minute animation followed up by a two-minute phone call with a coach, followed up by a two-minute oh, learning? Are unit? we inventing a new concept, a mini blend? Now, <laughs> I mean, I, we're nano, into, I think that's a nano blend. Nano blend. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think the issue is actually it's an outrageous <laughs> question James because essentially a blend has to be a series of things or else it isn't a blend it's a single event and but you're right it can take a long time but I found when I've been in design workshops it is astonishing when you actually get your subject matter experts and everyone else in the room and say let's talk about the learners as people amazingly learning objectives change the whole concept changes because they suddenly go oh my god what's that person what's that person going to do and i think that's the key it can't be long-winded if it's right for the people so if it's sales guys that you've only got tiny little bits of moments with them it'll never be long-winded yeah i heard a great thing the other day it was um that uh, a design team always have a seat for the learner in the room 
which sounds really straightforward and simple, but actually having representation of someone or an empty chair with the voice of the learner so that they're thinking about how they transition from one activity to the next is just something that's a very simple method of really making sure that the learner is front and centre. Because we can get carried away with all these whiz-bang you know, gadgets and different learning styles when actually it is really all about the learner. So you take a leaf out of the um, Conservative Party then and make it Boris Johnson. <laughs> the empty chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting. I think you should be more than one chair. That's the problem. I think yeah. you need about seven empty <clears throat> chairs in the room because that's the issue is that people yeah. often think of a single learner yeah. and that's wrong. In the end, we're talking about a blend is a series of different paths. And you can have a very structured path. I mean, sometimes the analogy I think about is like an airport where you have to go from one place to the other. No one quibbles with that because that's the way it is. But if you went to a museum and they say, no, this is the first room you have to go to and you can't wander around, people would say, why? And I think because they're different types of people in a different type of situation, you could feasibly have an airport where you could actually get on the plane first but it wouldn't make any sense so you have to choose the right blend for the right situation and I think that's a really good point because I've recently done some e-learning myself and there was no requirement for you to do anything in a linear order you literally dropped in you had a subject a, a, a menu of subjects and you could decide where you go in what order and for me I found that really engaging because there were bits that I already knew there were bits that I weren't, there were bits where I was really interested in. So from an engagement perspective, that worked really well. The challenge then comes when you get into a room full of 20 other people and the facilitator's got to pick up who's done what. Um, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but actually for me in terms of the blend, the blend felt more in my style. It was, it was much more productive for me as an individual learner. Well, I suppose that question about the facilitator is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I was, I was t- thinking about the opportunities for using AI mm. in relation to Blend. And I suppose if we assume that any, any day now or any time soon, that a lot of the, um, the setups where we would traditionally have a facilitator in a classroom that might be replaced by AI, then you will have... Mark, you're laughing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one day this might happen. Called um, how? Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that that would much more easily and smoothly deal with mm. those different people with different needs who are all uh, experiencing notionally the same event. Yeah, I, I'm laughing because essentially I always feel when, when you talk about AI and new technologies that the people, the last lot of the chain who are ever going to have the money to invest in AI will be training and development. Uh, are unfortunate lot and I think in the end that I'd just like to say for anyone out there who's a face-to-face trainer you are okay because you will not be replaced by a robot they'll be making sushi instead because that'd be far more profitable but there is isn't there an opportunity uh, the possibility that you could have a, a program that analyzes the syntax for example we talk about using um, face-to-face quite often for role play so that you can have that kind of qualitative feedback from a facilitator a real human in the classroom but we know that AI can analyse the syntax of what you're saying and give you that qualitative feedback when, you know, a decade or two ago we didn't know that. Actually, just on that one, I think the idea of a coach suddenly getting involved, the personal assistant, is an immensely powerful one. My favourite film is Her, 
which has basically got this um, base operating system who's a voice in your head, who is artificial intelligent and becomes the best mate uh, of the, the person who's there. And is always there, always advising, always gathering knowledge. It could be in 20, 30 years time, we'll just have a coach. We won't have trainers anymore. We'll just have that coach in your ear who knows who you are and then gives that advice. Because yes, voice recognition is so good that blends could be immensely different in the future. Um, but, and I think this is the important point, is will that coach be trained on that particular process that we're trying to train people in the corporate sector? Ultimately, things change so fast in the corporate sector that e-learning or, or Siri-type things, they'll, they, there's no point creating content around it. The human beings will still be in that mix, especially if the numbers of learners are low. That's the core key. Blends will ultimately still be driven by the monetary issues of how much budget have I got to do this. It might be cheaper to run it than actually build it. But do you think, um, I mean, picking up here, that there's a sort of, a, a, there's some change happening and that maybe that blend, the whole notion of blend is going to sort of move with the times um, a bit and, you know, maybe introduce, for example, a social media dimension to it. Um, it's interesting what you say, Mark, about that it becomes more about a coach and then maybe the content is sort of derived from elsewhere. It's curated, for example. That's what I was just going to say. I was going to say that I think there's increasingly, I already see it in some of the programmes that we um, we look at, that it's got a huge dimension of curation because I think we all see how much, we all experience every day how much content is out there. We're all bombarded with it. And actually to for a lot of people to recreate content that they already have within their organisations or they know is out there, for example, in something like a TED Talk, you know, people don't want to waste their budget on that stuff, sort of stuff. And that's a really important part of the blends that we create. But that takes us back to where we started, is that these assets are very useful in their own rights, but do they link? Many, many years ago, um, we had this idea of reusable learning objects. Um, and the concept was that you would reassemble things. Now we have clever AI systems that can pull the whole of the planet in, whereas before it used to be things that you'd create at the time. But there was always this idea of a learning object that linked each of them together. And that's where the real challenge was, that you had to be able to say, now you've seen this, let's think about it in the context of who you are, what your job is, and now we'll look at this next thing. If in the end all you're doing is pulling stuff in, it could create a degree of chaos in people's minds. I mean, Andy, you said you would like the idea of that open environment. There are just as many people who want structure. They won't get structure very well delivered in a pure curated environment because all it's going to do is say these are the 20 objects that are useful to you, but I can't really build stuff in between those objects because I don't really know what those objects are. You have to create that content and I think that's the challenge. No, I think creating that context and the sort of shell that holds all of those is the, the most important part of curation, isn't it? I think it's, yeah, like you say, it's really easy just to pull together a bunch of pre-existing assets, but to tie them together in a thread, I mean, that's why it's called curation. Going back to your analogy about the museum, that's what happens if you go to an exhibition, isn't it? Somebody has spent years planning that exhibition and putting everything in the right order, and this room is all gathered together because it all connects and it relates to the next room because it follows on in a phase. And so I think what you're saying, Andy, about your experience is, you know, an exploratory experience of learning is fantastic if you don't have to work through all of it or in the same order but it still has to make sense as a whole thing. And I think you're completely right that that focus is the thing that brings it all together. 
I think one of the challenges we've encountered recently, both from our clients and also from our facilitators, is um, the assumption that you know if there's some pre-learning that needs to be done before a learning, ex- a face-to-face learning experience, there almost seems to be this assumption that that pre-learning won't be done. So there's that there's this kind of starting from ground zero, which completely devalidates the learning that is, is goes before it, the, the kind of blended piece. So I think there's a real challenge here around the journey piece. For me, it's knitting all of it together so it's neat and that actually one transitions to the other and it feels like it's part of one journey rather than three or four isolated pieces of learning. I think the responsibility is beyond the designers, though, and beyond the people putting together the Great. blend. A few years ago, I did a, a blended learning program on coaching. And the idea was that you would do some e-learning on the coaching, the principles, the processes, etc. And then at nine o'clock, all of these actors came in for the day. The day was reduced from two days to one, and the actors came in, and you did your stuff, and straight away you practiced, and that was where it worked. At lunchtime, I had a, a little debrief with people and said, how did it all go? Uh, did everyone do the e-learning? And this guy at the back just popped his head up, hand up, and he was clearly, he wanted to say something. And I said, well, did you? And he said, no. And he said, well, did your, did your manager give you time to do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he gave me as much time as I needed. Didn't reduce my workload, though. And I think that's the Mm. fundamental problem, that in the the pressurised situation we are at the moment, I'm surprised anyone does any learning when it's left to them, because the work that they're doing will always take preference, unless somehow managers get better about micromanaging the workloads that people have. So we delivered a prototyping day recently on a new product we're about to roll out that had some e-learning at the start of it. And there were about six or seven clients in the room that had been given access to the e-learning and and they encountered that very problem in terms of workload. Some had done some, some had done a little, some had done absolutely none. But the point that they were making was actually having been through the live environment, they were far more motivated to go and do that learning because something in that live environment really resonated with them. And they thought, actually, do you know what? I'd like to go back and learn a little bit more about Moore's Law. It was digital transformation or you know, a- another topic. So we felt that the back end of that, there was something we needed to think about in terms of how we position a blend, because we always seem to think pre, live, post. Mm. But I think there's much more to it than that. You know, When is the best time? When have you motivated people enough so that they're going to go and want to go and discover for themselves? And I think that question of culture brings us back to the question of having the chair for the um, learner in the room, doesn't it? Because you can't can't, um, design for something like that in a blanket way. You can't say nobody's ever going to do e-learning before they go to a face-to-face classroom. That's not the case. You have to talk to the learners. You have to sit them in your meetings and involve them because maybe maybe you're dealing with an audience who do have time or they have the motivation to fit it in. Maybe you aren't, but you need to go into your blend design armed with that information, don't you? Yeah, I mean, and I think the idea is what engages those individuals is what you have to work out. Why are they doing it? And your blend should have those, should anticipate those points and create it in there. So the idea is the workshop sometimes is a fearful place for someone to be if they haven't done the pre-work. If that's well enough kind of set up, you've got a good chance people will do it. It's not a very positive way of doing it, but at least they know they need to be there. But I know from experience, I'm been doing a film course, I'm a film production course, and, and, and what I find interesting is that I haven't done the pre-thinking before I go in and do the lighting tests, etc. But boy, at the end of it, I'm looking at the videos on YouTube and everything else like that. With that understanding, as you said, Andy, I've I've been sparked to do it. 
Now, I am not a pre-planned learner. That's the point. I, I have to be stimulated, engaged. I have to have it shoved straight in my face that you got that wrong. And that's the way I work. I'm different from someone who says, I'm not going to turn up in that room unless I know backwards how all those lighting things work. You have to have a, design, a blend that matches both. But you mustn't make someone feel bad if they don't do the pre-work. So it's the bad point, I think, that your clients are making in that respect. When they say they don't do the pre-work, it may well be that they shouldn't be doing the pre-work for some of those people. Design a blend that, that they do it afterwards. Is, is, is you know, blended design and the whole approach to it sort of being shaken up a bit and weirdly, um, in fact, sort of going away from the technology and back to the human? Um, yeah, well, I don't think we've had time for the technology completely to take over yet, but I think for some people get very excited about uh, curation. I mean, things like Anders Pink and things like that can generate lots of stuff that's generated by the wisdom of the, of the crowd. However, I still believe that we, if we're not careful, we'll, have, we'll get into a lazy syndrome of just getting that to create our content and gather it together. Well, no, that, that's what I mean. I mean, you do need uh, intervention in order to sift, sort, moderate, edit. You uh, know, I think they should keep, be, keep, yeah. you know, and so on. Curation doesn't have to be done by technology, does it? No, far you know, from it. Mm. Like, a, like a museum exhibition, the best curation that's would be done by somebody, you know, who's been working in that field for 40 years. But the point about the curation tools that we have currently is no one can know what everything is out there that's the point so you gather everything that's good but then you look at it and you say what's relevant to, to us and how I'm going to put this into a meaningful experience it is AI working with humans in tandem that's the future of blends are they aggregation tools anyway in the first place rather than curation tools what's the difference well <laughs> there is a difference a big difference isn't there well curation should be there should be a quantity filter shouldn't there and then a quality filter um, and so that's the question about human input isn't it and I would I would also say you know yes going back to the human element in blend I think we're all constantly coming back to actually as everything becomes more digitized the human element in all of our learning experiences is always the most important thing we have to keep coming back to that how important that is to engage people with humor you know those are things that have a really sort of delicate human touch don't they we can't ever get away from that. Now, I think context is key as well and making sure that context that's weaved into the journey it, adding to everything you've just said as well. So no AI robots running the show? Not this week. <laughs> Maybe helping. <laughs> Not in my lifetime. Okay that's that's very interesting um, round the table discussion. Now. I think we sort of you know we've made a bit of a journey from the 1990s when uh, the beginnings have blended right up to the um, present day. So I suppose the last question I'd ask you all is sort of where do you see it heading in the future? I would say my prediction for blend is that everything becomes more refined and more um, pointed and more tailored to the learner. So I, I would see more personalization for different paths through the same pro through the same program. Um, I would see more use of curation to bring in, to really focus in on what's important. I'd see more intense human design and more intense sort of machine design as well. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, it's clear as mud. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my prediction probably is that um, 
it will be used in the same way to an extent that it's always been used and, and that is dependent on the person that is curating and pulling this journey together. You know, you've got some great learning designers out there that will think of the whole ecosystem um, with whatever tools that they've got and, and they'll pull together a very good blend that's going to help the, the end outcome for the learner and be very learner-centred. But equally, there will be people out there that will just continue to use it as a sheep dip. Um, which probably adds minimum value to anyone. So I'd say the more human and context focused we can be and think about the, the journey is my hope for the future of blended learning. For me, I think as the next generations come through, I think traditional models will be completely challenged. I think we will start from the online first, do we really need all these other things approach and people will probably reinvent the wheel. I suspect what will happen is we'll have way too much the wrong way for a while. And then people say, actually, it was quite good when we all got in a classroom, wasn't it? We actually were able to talk a bit. And we'll finally go back again to a model where it's mixed. So we'll, it's, it's, it's a homeostatic curve, goes up and down. And I think at the moment we're shifting more into a little chaos. And I think we'll, it will probably get a little worse before it gets better. Yeah, I don't. Th I think blended learning won't be designed by learning designers. It'll be designed by the crowd. Mm. Anyway, um, on that bombshell. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so thanks everyone, Krista, Andy, and Mark for joining in. If you'd like to carry on the conversation, you can reach out to us on Twitter, where we're at Kineo, or via Kineo.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the five conversations blend, check out the link in the show notes.